I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Stephen Bartels, a professor at the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice and in the Departments of Psychiatry and Community and Family Medicine at Dartmouth's Geisel School of Medicine. Dr. Bartels has co-authored a perspective article on older adults and mental health. Dr. Bartels, to start with the scope of the problem, you write that there are 5.6 to 8 million Americans, 65 or older, who have mental health or substance use disorders. Can you tell us what disorders predominate and whether they're largely late onset or pre-existing disorders that follow the patients into the older years? Well, the most common disorders are depression uh, and dementia and anxiety. Um, and the IOM report that we just did uh, has uh, about uh, three to four and a half percent prevalence rates of depression. However, in primary care, the rate is uh, as high as 25 uh, percent for clinically significant depressive symptoms and for major depression, about 10 percent. Now, relative to late versus early onset, that's a very interesting uh, question because there is some difference or some suggestion that there's a difference in terms of the types of presentations, although the rates are not entirely clear. Late-onset depression tends to have a bit more severe cognitive and neurological symptoms and somewhat greater risk of, of Alzheimer's disease and certainly is associated with uh, medical comorbidity, where early-onset depression tends to be associated with the family history of depression and more severe symptoms. So that's, that's what we know about depression. Um, if we look at, uh, at schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and other somewhat less prevalent disorders that are perhaps about 1% of the older adult population, uh, there, we see that late-onset schizophrenia is, is relatively rare. It's about 15% after the age of 40, um, and a bit more prevalent in women. And late-life mania, though, part of bipolar disorder, when it does tend to occur, uh, tends to be much more uh, associated with medical conditions like delirium and medication toxicity or substance abuse. So this distinction is important, uh, but we do know overall uh, mental health conditions go hand-in-hand hand with medical comorbidity. So uh, which causes which is often unclear, but certainly uh, psychiatric symptoms, depression exacerbates the course or makes more complicated the course of chronic health conditions and vice versa. And what does the substance abuse element look like? Are we talking mainly about alcohol, prescription drugs? What substances? Well, the most common addiction in older adults, of course, is, uh, is tobacco use. But after that, it's alcohol use disorders are a problem. But we're really not talking about alcohol dependence. Uh, most uh, individuals who have alcohol dependence don't make it into late life. So, so what we are talking about, for example, with respect to alcohol problems, is what we call at-risk drinking. Um, and for that, we're talking about 5% uh, of the population, according to the Institute of Medicine, or about 2 million. What we mean by at-risk drinking or alcohol misuse is more than uh, one drink a day for men or less than, on average, one drink a day for women. And we know that in those instances, these people who engage in uh, at-risk drinking are more likely to have cognitive impairment or falls or other mental health comorbidities. Among that small group that does have more significant alcohol problems, early-onset alcoholism tends to be more likely in men, and late-onset or alcohol abuse disorders tends to be more common in women. So there, there's a bit of difference by gender uh, with respect to the alcohol problem. Now, when we think about, uh, about the drug problem, clearly the most common problem with respect to drugs has to do with uh, medication misuse. Um, and so illicit drug use is pretty rare. It's, it's less than 1% in older adults, 
but cannabis use is on the rise for sure and will become an increasing problem with the current baby boomer cohort as it ages. Uh, so what we are seeing largely in terms of medication misuse is problems with respect to psychoactive prescription drugs, uh, about 2 to 4% of older adults, uh, and this is largely uh, sedative hypnotics, benzodiazepines, and opioid uh, analgesics. You note in your article that the new Medicare annual wellness visit will require primary care physicians to screen older adults for cognitive impairment, depression, and alcohol abuse. What have primary care physicians been doing to date, and what will the new screening entail? To date, I think there's been a huge variation in terms of what primary care physicians and geriatricians have been doing with respect to screening. Uh, and so that I think it's been uh, widely variable, so it's a bit hard to note, except to note that the studies that have looked at uh, rates of detection of cognitive impairment or depression recognize that these things tend to be under-detected in regular practice. Now, the new Medicare wellness visit does include uh, a requirement, or at least for reimbursement, the uh, need to engage in routine measures such as height, weight, blood pressure, uh, family history, and then an assessment to detect cognitive impairment. Uh, so what's meant by that is not that uh, there's a recommended screening instrument, but rather that uh, physicians on an annual basis need to look for signs through direct observation uh, of cognitive impairment and then consider whether or not to screen. Now, it is the case for the first welcome visit uh, under this new Medicare uh, benefit. There's also the requirement that, yes, individuals need to be screened for depression, and there Medicare is clear that you need to use a screening instrument. And so CMS doesn't have specific requirements around this. However, for depression, uh, it's generally thought that uh, the recommended tool, I think there's more consensus on this, is either PHQ-9 or the PHQ-2, the shorter version. And we've been basically, I think, suggesting to physicians that this is really the hemoglobin A1C for depression, uh, that uh, this is a well-tested and, and validated instrument that's brief, and certainly the two-question uh, version of it, which asks about uh, interest or pleasure in doing things or feeling depressed or hopeless, can be done first, and then we can step down if an individual patient uh, verifies either one of those into the full PHQ-9. With respect to cognitive assessment, it's a bit more controversial. Um, it's the case that there are work groups uh, addressing this right now, uh, that there was an article that just came out by Cordell and colleagues just in the last month reviewing the different instruments, and, and there seems to be some movement towards thinking that a brief five-minute screen, such as the mini-cog or memory impairment screen, is something that may make sense. But again, there's no specific consensus on that type of screening. And then finally, with respect to alcohol screening, again, this is recommended that there be an assessment of alcohol use disorders. And again, there isn't a specific instrument that is recommended there. But what we do know in geriatric substance use disorders, particularly alcohol use disorders, that something like the audit or the MASG, which is the Michigan Alcohol Screening Test for Geriatrics, makes sense. Or it's just simply asking about quantity and frequency. Uh, in contrast, the use of the cage that many people have often grown up uh, learning about, which talks about cutting down or being angry about being asked about alcohol use or being guilty about it or having an eye-opener, really doesn't work for older adults at all. So those of us who learn that the cage is the thing that we should use for alcohol screening, it's important to know, does not work well in the older adult, and it's much better simply to ask about quantity or frequency. You also draw on studies conducted in developing countries to suggest that a workforce of non-medical professionals may be able to help in addressing these problems. 
To what extent are the mental health problems in the developing world similar to those among the elderly in this country? Well, this is actually an easy answer because we don't know. The prevalence rates of mental health disorders in uh, low- and middle-income countries is not even clear within uh, younger adults. Um, What we do know, though, is that uh, if you look at the World Health Organization, across the world, the greatest cause of disability by far is mental illness, which accounts for about 24% of disability worldwide, followed by alcohol and drug use disorders, and then Alzheimer's disease. So the top three are actually mental health and substance use disorders, and then come the medical disorders. So that's one thing to keep in mind. But what we do know among younger adults is that uh, mental disorders account for about 11% of the total burden of disease uh, in low- and middle-income countries, including depression, for example. And so uh, Vikram Patel, who's been really a pioneer in looking at this, has suggested that the depression and anxiety disorders vary substantially in primary care settings, but about a mean of 20% in low-income countries is the prevalence rate there. But again, this is in younger adults and about 9.8% of the burden of disease in these low- and middle-income countries uh, is due to uh, neuropsychiatric disorders, uh, which includes depression. So uh, not sure, uh, particularly in older adults, we simply don't know. Um, It's a complicated question, and what I think is fair to say is that the research literature is now catching up with getting reasonable rates within these low- and middle-income countries and younger adults, and I think the next thing that perhaps that needs to be done is to begin to empirically look at the rates in older adults. In some of the studies you cited, lay workers delivered the interventions for depression, anxiety, even for schizophrenia. What sorts of interventions were they, and how did the outcomes look? Yeah, this is really interesting, and what I tried to highlight in the perspective article that I wrote is that, uh, that you know, when you look at these low-income countries, the developing countries, the uh, availability and access to mental health providers, particularly psychiatrists, is just so low uh, that it's really not possible to have a professional model and have any population health uh, impact. Uh, so uh, there's been a number of interesting papers summarized by Vikram Patel and uh, that have described a, a variety of interventions that are, have been implemented uh, with success uh, using lay health professionals. So, for example, one of the studies that's been, I think, particularly impressive is the MANAS trial that was done by Vikram Patel uh, that published in The Lancet in uh, 2010, which uh, was conducted in Goa, India, which addressed depression and anxiety disorders using a collaborative step care intervention, which offered case management and psychosocial interventions provided by a trained lay health counselor. So this is somebody who didn't have any medical background, was trained in screening and delivering brief uh, psychotherapy supplemented by antidepressant medications by the primary care physician, and then with some remote supervision by a mental health specialist. The results of this study were really quite interesting in that it did indicate that a collaborative step care intervention did improve recovery for patients with common mental disorders, anxiety and depression, in this large study. There have been other studies of individual psychoeducation and group therapy also in in Chile and Uganda and in Pakistan, And then with respect to schizophrenia, the literature is a little less available, but community-based interventions that support rehabilitation and help people to remain in the community seems to have been effective. So a study done in rural India 
for example, local community members in the community were trained to deliver comprehensive home-based identification of people with chronic mental health problems, and then regular follow-up and monitoring for medication compliance and education for their families. And this was shown to promote better functioning and better outcomes and lower hospitalizations in this large study in India. So we wonder about, in the article, whether or not this might, in fact, be a potential solution for uh, at least one solution for the workforce shortfall in the United States around geriatric mental health workers, what we call reverse innovation. Maybe we could learn from some of these countries that have, again, a low availability of healthcare professionals with mental health and aging backgrounds to have lay individuals and uh, lower-level health providers uh, trained to screen and deliver these brief interventions, again, with some support and supervision by the experts. In fact, for the United States, you do recommend brief interventions for geriatric depression and evidence-based preventive interventions to reduce the incidence of depression in patients who have health conditions that would leave them prone to it, such as stroke or macular degeneration. Would the interventions be similar in those cases, and would they possibly be delivered by non-professionals? Well, they possibly could. You know, what's interesting is that there is some suggestion that we may be able to prevent depression in older adults who have common and significant medical conditions. Again, this is an emerging literature and still is not fully fleshed out, but a couple of studies seem to suggest that this might be possible. So, for example, uh, Robner and colleagues in 2008 in the American Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry did a study focused on macular degeneration in older adults. And so you may know that there could be completely understandable that macular degeneration, that progressive blindness that occurs, that there's a very high rate of depression for older adults. And so what Dr. Rodner did was randomly assign people to brief problem-solving therapy that can be delivered by uh, both professionals but also by uh, care managers and, and other individuals and found that in this trial that uh, people that were randomly assigned to problem-solving therapy uh, had half the rate of incidence of depression within the context of macular degeneration. So this was really quite promising. It's important to note that after six months, these benefits diminished. But certainly it suggested that maybe there's hope that older adults identified at high risk that there might be chance to prevent depression. Another study, for example, focused on stroke uh, by Robinson and colleagues that was published in the JAMA also in 2008 and found that prescriptions with escitalopram or problem-solving therapy resulted in a lower incidence of depression over 12 months compared to placebo. So, so at least there's potential suggestion here that if we can identify individuals at high risk, uh, either due to medical problems that are highly associated with uh, depression or other events, that perhaps we may be able to help people who are older to uh, prevent depression, not just treat it when it occurs. To fill gaps in care, you also suggest that we capitalize on new technologies. For example, you say that smartphone applications can support detection, monitoring, and self-management. Can you explain how those systems work and how close they are to being usable? Sure. I think this is one of the most exciting areas that's evolving, is the whole area of telehealth. And, of course, it has potential great application for older adults who... uh, due to being uh, isolated or not being able to drive or having physical disabilities, are less likely to be able to make it into clinical appointments in person and also are less interested, actually, in being involved in conventional treatments in uh, psychiatric clinics. So, so what can we do with technology? Well, 
we know that 69% of older adults own cell phones and that older adults are the fastest-growing demographic using uh, computers and Internets uh, and smartphones. So they're catching up quickly. And so if we think about that, there's the potential to reach these vulnerable population groups with monitoring capabilities that could assist chronic disease management, maximize health, and prevent complications, and help people to live independently. So, for example, you might think about homebound rural elderly and consider the opportunities of being able to do telehealth through the Internet. Alternatively, use mobile health applications for screening and assessment in various health behavior states. Uh, It's important to know that these devices can be used and accessible on demand and responsive to just-in-time assessments. So there's lots of opportunity for integrating self-monitoring, which is going to become increasingly prevalent in terms of use of sensors or mobile devices in one's environment. You can detect activity levels, falls, even differences in terms of social interactions through these devices and see whether or not people are responding or having difficulty. And then embed in these, perhaps, some of the therapeutic interventions that uh, have been shown to be effective. On top of perhaps the capacity to use these devices on their own, I think one of the more exciting applications is to blend what we'd call high-touch with high-tech. So in terms of the prior uh, comment I just made around using lay professionals or peers or entry-level professionals, if we equip those individuals with smartphones, with the capacity to visit that frail elderly person in their home and to be able to uh, get decision support or consultation when necessary. They can do systematic screening of mental health conditions. They could also do a screening of chronic health conditions such as diabetes and other conditions and then have a support when needed uh, through the telehealth device if they get into trouble, or just decision support in terms of algorithmic stepped care interventions in the field. So I think there's tremendous opportunities to think about dealing with this significant shortfall in mental health providers by blending both this lay health professional workforce supported and supervised by uh, physicians and uh, doctoral-level individuals, but also linked by this mobile health technology, which is just becoming more and more prevalent for older adults in terms of their use. You've said a couple of times that good data are not always available, and in fact, in your article, you recommend that the NIH change its policy that allows researchers to exclude participants who are 65 or older. What's been the justification for that NIH policy, and what would a change in it mean to this field? This is a great question, and it's important to know that, again, it's not just my recommendation. This was the Institute of Medicine's recommendation in this report that I discussed in the article. I think that the background of this goes back to the idea of internal validity versus external validity, that studies have attempted to remove what they consider to be confounds or things that get in the way of clinical trials by removing medical comorbidity and co-occurring medications and other sorts of complicating features in the interest of, I think, doing, again, internally valid, tightly controlled studies. The problem with that idea is that with the aging of the population and with the high prevalence of medical comorbidity and multiple medications, that it places at risk the results of those data in terms of applying to the fastest growing uh, segment of the population, which is older adults. It potentially places the, and has placed uh, physicians in the position of extrapolating from research entirely uh, done on young adults to older adults 
in what some of us have called uh, evidence-free geriatric medicine, where the individuals have had to think about how to adjust dosages or adjust treatments based on extrapolation. Now, years ago, this was identified as a problem for women and children and minorities, and the federal legislation basically mandated that federal funding of research that the researchers, like myself, had to justify whether or not women or children are and minorities are in it or not, and if, if excluded, that you had to justify that. That same justification never has to happen for older adults. So in doing a geriatric study, I may have to justify why I'm not including children, uh, but uh, individuals who are doing uh, general studies of pharmacological agents can actually completely cut off the sample at the age of 65 and not even explain why they're doing that and not have to explain within the policy. So we're suggesting that that, that practice, that lack of required explanation as to why scientific justification, why you're excluding individuals end, and that NIH require that older adults be included unless there's significant contraindication or reason. And so we know that, that again, older adults carry 60% of the national disease burden but represent only 32% of patients in Phase two and Phase three clinical trials. So what would happen if we started to require individuals, uh, researchers, to include older adults? Well, very simply, we would have better data on how to treat older adults. And we'd be more comfortable as clinicians in knowing that the dosage of medications that we're prescribing or the types of side effects we might anticipate or the types of psychosocial treatments actually work in the older adult as opposed to extrapolating from uh, younger samples. So I think this is tremendously important and the uh, justification for uh, having this lack of equity across women, children, uh, minorities, and older adults, I frankly don't understand and I hope that it's going to be changed, but we'll see. Finally, in the world as it is today and with the information we have today, what else can primary care physicians do in caring for elderly patients who face problems of mental health or substance use? Well, I, I think there are several things that I think are important to take into consider. First of all, I think it's simply just being aware of what we all know to be the case and practicing clinicians uh, know already every day, which is that for older adults who come in to clinical settings, that mental health and mental disorders are just extremely common and that they absolutely increase the cost of care. They're associated with high rates of suicide, you know, the highest rate of suicide as older white men, and also is associated with poor uh, health outcomes and morbidity and mortality. So first of all, simply knowing and keeping aware of that. Secondly, in a very busy clinical setting, it certainly isn't possible to do comprehensive screening or comprehensive mental health treatment as a primary care physician, which is why partnering with and embedding other clinicians in primary care practices and clinical settings really is the answer. So we know that integrated health care, integrated mental health and physical health care works. There's a tremendous evidence base for that in both primary care and in community-based care. And so figuring out how to do that by extending training to nurses, uh, to social workers, to other uh, care managers within an office practice, that uh, chronic disease manager who manages diabetes can also manage depression and can also apply evidence-based practice, uh, integrative collaborative care models in primary care that have been shown to be very effective can be something that the physicians can adopt and certainly hospital systems and healthcare systems across the country 
are progressively integrating depression care management and depression care managers within the context of healthcare delivery settings. And then I think uh, considering the possibility of working collaboratively outside of medical settings with uh, social service delivery agencies, aging network providers, uh, and other individuals who are out there that come into contract with older adults every day, and seeing those individuals as potential assets, as colleagues, as individuals who can actually be eyes and ears for your patients out there in the community and working also uh, with families and, and, again, considering this option of technology. And then I think finally, uh, perhaps just recognizing that given the prevalence of mental health and substance abuse problems within healthcare delivery settings and primary care and other settings, and also recognizing that older adults are increasingly uh, obviously going to be a part of the demographic wave that's coming down the pike, I think it's simply important for physicians to become more comfortable with uh, either brief assessment or referral models for mental health and also recognize that all of us need to become familiar with uh, geriatrics and older adults. And so there's never going to be enough geriatricians or geriatric psychiatrists to provide the primary care. We can provide consultation and expert uh, guidance and, and oversight and help with the most complicated individuals. But all physicians, I think, need to, uh, again, embrace the idea of becoming um, both geriatric familiar as well as comfortable with, again, just the brief capacity to help screen and then refer and work with other colleagues in this highly prevalent set of disorders in older adults. Thank you, Dr. Bartels.